So it, um, can you hear okay? Is this working okay for everyone? A little bit louder? Sorry. So let's try now. Is this better? Good? Okay. It was a pleasure for me to um, sit sit with you all who was at this last sitting. And I'm left uh, sitting here now, uh, left with that sense of pleasure. And I'm kind of reflecting on the pleasure. And um, it isn't just the pleasure of, you know, warmth against a cold skin. There's something deeper, deep, something very deeply satisfying, meaningful. Uh, to uh, share in the stillness, share in the intention, share in the effort, uh, just to, f- to sense the field that was here and to be able to share in it. And um, it felt like a nice feeling, appropriate feeling, uh, for the topic of tonight, which is uh, joy. And in the sequence of dependent origination, uh, deliberative dependent origination, joy follows delight. And um, as Donald did and the other teachers did, I'm going to review a little bit the idea of this transcendent or liberative dependent origination and then um, talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the joy. So the idea of dependent origination uh, is the key insight that the Buddha had. You could say it was the the one really original insight, understanding, realization that the Buddha had. It's the realization that allowed him to become free, become awake. And it's the insight that he relied on to really uh, uh, convey the path of practice that he spent so many decades of his life uh, passing on to the rest of us. It's really a key concept. And a simple way of, of explaining it would be that um, nothing, no, no thing, comes from nothing. <laughs> that everything, everything, comes from something else. It arises from something else. It arises in dependence and other causes and conditions. If it rains, the dependent cause for rain is there had to be clouds. And so the clouds are there and then it depends on them, there's rain. So it's quite unusual to have rain with a cloudless uh, day. Um, in order to have an oak tree, it's dependent on the existence of the oak seed dependent on the existence of the ground that it's going to grow, grow in. It's dependent on a variety of different things uh, for that oak tree to grow. And so, in the, uh, and so dependent origination is the teaching that uh, for something to occur, it occurs in dependence on other causes and conditions. Um, and if those causes and conditions disappear, those causes and conditions that support the existence of that thing 
If those things go away, then that thing uh, dissolves, resolves, ceases, comes to an end. So if the rain depends on the clouds, and the clouds go away, then the rain would go away as well. So um, the um, sometimes in Buddhism, especially in later Buddhism, the teachings on dependent origination are taken to uh, imply uh, the interdependence of all things. In the time of the Buddha and his teaching, the teaching of dependent origination was not being taught with that in mind, but rather was taught not as a generalization about all things, but rather about the specific connections between certain things. And for the Buddha, he wasn't really that interested in all things. His focus, and he did have a somewhat narrower focus than maybe we would prefer, but his focus was on our suffering and the liberation from that suffering. And his discussion about dependent origination then was applied to those conditions that give rise to suffering, the dependent conditions for them, and the dependent conditions that allow for the possibility of freedom from suffering. And so, um, uh, you know, his teachings to a great degree, one, one way or the other, are referring to these two things. Because as you take responsibility for the conditions, then uh, you can shift and change the direction of your life. All things are impermanent, but they're not random. There's, uh, there's patterns that we can help shape and make a difference in. If we can't make a difference in it, then there's no, no difference we can make. And so then there's not, nothing we can do about our condition, our situation. So the uh, dependent origination, that concept is at the, at the center. One step out from that center is the Four Noble Truths, which I like to restate in a different way. And I, I say it this way, that if you cling, you will suffer. If you let go of that clinging, that suffering disappears. So, so independence on clinging, a certain kind of suffering arises. When that dependent condition for suffering goes away, that suffering passes away as well. And so it means that our, we don't, we don't, we're not, uh, the suffering that we have in our life that comes from how we cling is not something that we can need to be stuck in. It's something that we can change and have nothing to do with. We can uh, reshape it. We can create the right conditions for the cessation of that suffering. And so, the, and so that's path of practice is to do that. And, and, uh, and I think all of you, in one way, the, one way or the other, knowingly or unknowingly, have come here to this month-long retreat, are engaged in this process of changing the pattern of your life, the flow of your life, the direction of your life, uh, hopefully for one that uh, will improve you and improve the world that you live in. That uh, hopefully will lessen suffering, bring maybe freedom from suffering. And there's a big divide 
between clinging and not clinging. A life based on clinging is very different than a life based on not clinging. And it, it's, uh, it, um, if, you, if that's a fork in the road for you, that fork will take you in very, very different directions in your life, depending which of those forks you choose. Now, maybe clinging has some role. Some people would like to defend clinging. And you're welcome to do that. But then remember that you'll, what comes with that is also suffering. That's just how it works. So you have to kind of take them both if you're in defend clinging, the value of clinging, good old clinging. But clinging is kind of like having a, a fist. A fist might occasionally be useful for something. Get the last of the ketchup out of the ketchup bottle. <laughs> you know, they might have its use. But if all you do is have a fist, you can't do a lot of things that the hand was made to do. When the, when the, when the fist of the hand gets released, then a lot of beautiful things can be done with the hands, the fingers. You can perhaps, you can, for example, you can shake someone's hand in a beautiful way, or you can caress a child's head in a beautiful way with your love and your care. You can caress a friend. You can help your friend. You can go out into the world. You can, many things you can do, you can't do if you stay frozen in a fist. So, same thing with the fists in our mind, the clinging in our mind. Perhaps they have some use. Maybe they had a use once, but you forgot to let go. And so the clinging is still there. And some of the clinging is quite deep. There's light clinging and there's deep clinging. Some of you are probably clinging to things here at this retreat that um, in a month from now will have absolutely no meaning whatsoever. So, for example, you might be clinging to your walking place, to the place you're sitting. I know people sometimes come to the retreat and they cling to their kotuk. <laughs> and that's mine. Or their, you know. And a year later, they have no memory of that. So they kind of, maybe it's a kind of lightweight clinging, perhaps. But then there's, you know, really deep things we hold on to. And some of we don't even know we're holding on to. Some things are given to us almost from our society and we kind of take them, we, we appropriate them and hold on to them and they limit us dramatically. The story I like to tell is when I was in seventh grade, my, uh, the art teacher came over and looked at me drawing, I was drawing a picture of my hand and I really got into it because I was looked at my hand. I never looked at it so carefully before. It had a lot of lines. My hands had a lot of lines on it. And so I was drawing all the lines. And she looked at my, my drawing and she said, you have no artistic ability. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't care if I had artistic ability. It didn't mean anything to me. It's, you know, so what? You know, it, was, it, didn't, it didn't affect me anyway, except... She was the authority figure. So I, I assumed that she was right. So for the next, um, I think, uh, six years, I carried with me this idea that I had no artistic ability. 
until the, my, the, my roommate in college, he was a born-again artist. <laughs> and uh, he um, pulled it out of me, brought it out of me, and then I became an art major. The, um, I remember when, um, uh, I think I was maybe 13 or something, and maybe it was the first time I got kind of interested in a girl. And um, I came home to dinner and said it. I kind of mentioned something like this at the dinner table. And um, I was kind of teased for it. But you know, it was so tender. It was the first time, right? And um, so I didn't mention girls at home until well after I left home at 18. I wasn't going to do that again. And... Um, so then, you know, that uh, the way I felt hurt was something I held on to, or I, I created a fist, a resistance, a fear, of closed down, of something. And I carried that with me for a long time. So there's, there's an infinite number of these kinds of ways in which we create fists in our hearts, fists in our mind. And maybe once they were useful to defend ourselves against something, but then they get frozen and stuck and we continue with them. So how do, we, how do we let go of the clinging? How do we release our suffering? And I'm just so grateful, so uh, phenomenally grateful to have discovered a path, a way to help me become free of suffering through that clinging. And I'm very grateful that it's a path that also I share with other people. It's not, not something we do just for ourselves, but we do it for others as well. I think it's very profound to come on a retreat like this. Uh, it's one of, the, of, uh, one of the really great laboratories or great arenas to really look deep, deep, deep into our hearts, our minds, and to understand what's really going on there in a way that sometimes it's very hard to do in ordinary daily life where things are busy and everything. And to have this be able to go really deep and find the deep, deep places of holding and release it gives me a lot of hope. Someone has to do this work because it really shows hope and possibility for everyone. And it helps all of us, I hope, to go out into the world and, and, uh, and be of uh, service, of help in a stronger, bigger way to others as we, we do this work. In, uh, in the Zen tradition, they have a 10-step dependent origination called the Oxfording Pictures. And the last, last step is returning to the marketplace with gift-bestowing hands. So in dependence on the other conditions, you can come back to the world in a certain kind of way. So to say, you know, clinging and freedom from clinging, to say it too many times is kind of annoying. Um, partly because it makes it sound like it's so easy. Like there must be a switch in there and I can just flip that switch and be done with it. And I've, uh, one of the delusions that I've uh, suffered under uh, in my retreat times is a delusion of sitting there watching my suffering, watching something, or watching and waiting for myself to get concentrated or something pain to go away or something. 
And the delusion was that I was going to be able to see it change. And it took me a long time to realize how much time I sat waiting was wasted. <laughs> I could have done something better than sit there and wait. Watching is going to go now. And often what happened, some of the things, I never saw it disappear. You know, the moment it disappeared, I would be engaged and be present and work with my, my practice. I'd get up and go walking meditation and come back. It's gone. I didn't see it go. Or, so sometimes we don't see it, but also sometimes things don't actually shift so dramatically. The Buddha talked about the thinning out of attachments. Rather than a switch on and off, uh, our attachments slowly over time thin out, thin out, thin out. When they get thin enough, then they can snap, let go, dissolve. And so the thinning process is a slow process. Each moment of being mindful, something gets thinned, imperceptibly. Each moment of letting go, something gets thinned. Maybe it's imperceptible each, each particular time. But over hours and days, it has an effect. You start, you know, a cumulative effect. So you can see it sometimes. You can sometimes, for example, you can see it with thinking. That uh, at times, thinking can seem very, very solid. Sometimes our thinking is the most, seems like the most real thing in the world. But as you get more calm and more settled and the mindfulness gets stronger and you let go of your thoughts and there's a slow thinning of the thinking process. And it isn't so much the thin, there's a switch, on and off switch for thinking, but the thinning gets thinner, more transparent. Um, and slowly, as it gets more thinner and thinner, it becomes, it has less of power, less authority. We don't invest it as much. We see through it. We see it, it just thought. It's just a thought, just a thought. It's quite a phenomenal insight to actually be able to see a thought, some idea, and, and say in a way, see it, oh, it's just a thought. As opposed to, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is so important. Just a thought. The thought of your kotuk. My kotuk. Oh, it's mine. And there's the fist, mine. But as the the thoughts become thinner, oh, it's just a thought of a kotuk. It happens to have a sense of my in it. And the sense of my becomes thin. And as it becomes thin, we're less likely to latch onto it. But it hasn't gone away. But we're freer and freer from it. So for me, it's been very helpful to realize that the path is a gradual path. I find it a little bit oppressive, the idea of a sudden path. There are certainly sudden moments, but I've lived under the expectation of sudden change for longer than I care to admit. And unbeknownst to me, while I was waiting for sudden change, I was changing slowly. Just to do this practice, there's a way in which it unfolds, the practice unfolds, even if you 
even in ways we don't understand. We've got to do it. Show up. And who knows what's supposed to unfold? Who knows what's supposed to happen next? No one really knows. But I like to say our body knows, or the heart knows, something inside knows. So when my son was in fifth grade, um, beginning of the year, his teacher assigned each child in the class, 30 kids, with a personal poem. During the summer, he thought about each kid, because he'd known them the year before, and he, um, he kind of thought, this is poem fits for this kid. And then once a week, each kid in the class recited his or her poem to the whole class. So for all these weeks, they got, got to hear each other's poems. And uh, it was kind of made for them, some lesson or something about them. My son was very happy because he got the shortest poem in this class. <laughs> so as I could tell, that was, he thought it was most meaningful. But his poem was quite, t- I thought, quite touching. His poem uh, was, um, Without darkness, nothing is born. Without light, nothing flowers. Without darkness, nothing is born. Without light, nothing comes to flower. So, as you sit here, you're both sitting in darkness and you're sitting in light. Both are here. There's actually a lot going on in retreats like this, much more than meets the eye. But there's darkness, beautiful darkness, the womb of your practice. And who knows what needs to come forth? Who knows what sorrow? Who knows what joy? Who knows what unresolved issues? Who knows what resolutions? Who knows? There has to be kind of a willingness to have that, for it to come out of the darkness, something. See what needs to sprout. I've been surprised sometimes to have my breath taken away, sitting here quietly, minding my own business, and sometimes, boom, some understanding, some realization, some emotion, some feeling surfaces. It was time for it to come. And then without the light, nothing comes to flower. And everything will flower if you bring light to it, if you bring awareness to it. No sorrow, no unresolved issue, no despair, no joy, no insight will not flower when light is brought to it, brought, brought to it. To bring awareness, to bring mindfulness to our life, let something grow and develop and flower. It's, it's, and to learn to trust that. It might be a slow process. So what is it that needs to grow? What is that gradual process? The Buddha over and over again ref- referred to the path of practice as being a gradual path that entailed a variety of different factors, conditions, qualities, states that come into play. And the, the, the chain of dependent, uh, liberative dependent origination was one of the ways that he talked about 
the conditions that support this process of freedom. It's not stages, not like 12 stages you have to go through. Am I the right, am I this, you know, which stage am I at? But they're really qualities of mind that come into play as we practice. Sometimes in ways we can see, sometimes we don't necessarily see it. Sometimes we see it in retrospect. I did not, I did not realize until many years later how much faith I had in the practice. I didn't think, I didn't, faith wasn't in my vocabulary. But I realized, wow, I really had a lot of confidence and trust in this process, in this practice. And that was a really important supportive condition for me for allowing me to go forth and to to develop my practice. The dependent condition for the growth of my practice was a certain degree of faith. So the, the liberative dependent origination begins with suffering. because it has to. And the reason it has to is that it's describing a path to freedom from suffering. And it doesn't make any sense to talk about a path free of suffering unless you're suffering first. Who does it? <laughs> I mean, maybe you'd like to have a path that brings you freedom from suffering without first having to suffer. But then you don't need it. So just just the way it works. I mean, it can't it can't work any other way. So there you are, suffering. And then uh, to realize that there's a path of practice, realize that you don't have to be mired in suffering. To realize you can bring light to the suffering, as opposed to bringing ignorance to it. Remember, I talked about this big divide. If we bring ignorance to suffering we take one path. And it's a path that often leads us to split, to fragment ourselves, to split ourselves. We split ourselves with ourselves. I don't want to, by ignoring suffering or ignoring parts of it, we kind of pushing something aside, not really seeing it, a part of who we are. Or we split ourselves with other people. Or we split ourselves with the world. And a big part of uh, this practice <clears throat> is to heal those splits by bringing light, not continuing the process of cycles of, of <clears throat> ignoring, but rather to bring in the process of enlightening, bringing light to our experience, seeing it for what it is. And then to, to realize there is such a thing requires trust. And all of you have that trust but I suspect many of each of you in varying degrees. Because in order to engage in any activity at all, there's some modicum of trust involved. If you sign up for a class at the local junior college, you're trusting that the junior college has chosen a teacher that's suitable. You pay $100 for a textbook. You You offer some trust that it's probably, you know, that it's probably worthwhile to buy it. That's what they, so they want, to want me to buy it. If, you, if you're going to learn how to bake bread, like Heather had to do. She got that book, Tassahara Bread Book, and she had enough confidence that she could pull it off that she did it. I don't know how much she had. Didn't take, but she had to have some. So there's always, when you're engaging, there has to be some. 
So it's, so I, would, I would say that all of you have that. I would say that you all have the first quality. <laughs> you know, I apologize if one or two of you, I can't relate to that. And, um, <clears throat> and, uh, and all of you have some degree of, tr- of trust, confidence, faith, that brings you to here to do a process of engaging in that, bringing light to it. What we don't, what I don't know, is how many of you have delight. But as the, what the Buddha said, the, uh, with faith or confidence as a supporting condition, that allows for a certain kind of delight to arise. And or appreciation. Or I, I like to think of it as lightening up. You know, the world has enough grim Buddhists. And uh, you don't, you know, we don't want to add more of them. The, uh, there's no reason for Buddhism to be heavy. It's actually supposed to be light. It's very serious, the Buddha stuff. But there's no reason not to hold it lightly. Because it's kind of like if you go backpacking with four suitcases, two backpacks, a refrigerator, and your laptop and a power supply, and you start heading down the trail with all those things, you're not going to get very far. If you really want to take that path, you better lighten up. It really helps this path here if you lighten up. Try to not try not to carry so much. Try not to carry so much self. You know, if you invest so much of yourself in it, you know that my status in the eyes of my friends depends on getting that uh, badge that we should be giving at Spirit Rock at the end of retreats. You know, the one-month badge, the two-month badge. <laughs> You can do enough of these retreats. Enough of these retreats, you get a whole series of these badges going down. <laughs> do enough of it, then we get we give you a little cap. <clears throat> you know, having a uniform is really good because it's really good for the ego to have a uniform. And um, so we often invest a lot of ourselves. But lighten up; it's okay. It, it, we lighten up, as Donald said, by living an ethical life. And we lighten up I, I, by realizing that the path of the Dharma is meant to include all of who we are. It's meant to help us become whole. And it has to make us whole because to be fragmented means to be clinging. And so if we're letting go of clinging, it helps us to become whole. If you want to jumpstart the process of letting go of clinging, include your whole self. Include all of you, all of who you are. And I hope that, my hope is that as we offer this practice, that it brings you delight, lightens your load to know that all of who you are can be included here. That you're allowed to be just the way you are if you happen to be one of those very unusual people who's a little bit odd, 
And the oddest of them all is the one who isn't. That's odd. <laughs> we're all odd. And, we're, and, and to somehow to have a place we can all come and, and just be ourselves. Don't have to hide ourselves or pretend we're different. I really, it's really my, my sincerest wish that in this kind of environment here, that each of you feel like you, you, it's, it's fine to be who you are and to show who you are. When you come to interviews, that who you are as a person, all aspects of it, is received and held in and, a respectful and caring way. And the re- part of the reason for that is that why, we, why it's so important is that that's what mindfulness does for you. That's what your mindfulness is meant to do. Your mindfulness is meant to hold all of you with care, with lightness, with compassion. There's supposed to be space for all of you in the practice. So how do we, so, so to me that brings me to light. How many places in your life can you go where it's okay to bring all of yourself? So then, uh, coming out of delight, this kind of delight, the Buddha said, is a condition that supports the arising of joy. The word actually is piti, and um, and so sometimes it's translated by the words rapture, by rapt interest. Sometimes I've seen the word zeal as a translation. Um, And for a long time in my practice, I thought, and maybe this is partly because I had a certain kind of misunderstanding I got from being around Zen practice a lot, where um, mostly I sat in Zazen with this upside down smile. You know, I can't, I don't want to do it now, start smiling, but this Bodhidharma smile. And I thought there was something wrong about feeling joy. You know, it's kind of like lightweight, it's sentimental, it's, <clears throat> you know, it's not really serious. This is serious stuff, this, you know, Buddhism, you know, you can't make it serious. And, um, and I, I'm one of the, you know, hopefully few people <clears throat> who've had the oddity of <clears throat> trying to repress my joy. Can't do that. <laughs> that doesn't work well. I've known people who, who have had other reasons for not wanting to feel joy. There are maybe similar ways, but uh, certain religious teachings that people have received where uh, joy and pleasure of the body is considered kind of sinful. And so you can't go there. That's not right. I remember once having the... Pri- I felt a real privilege of telling a person that came from a religious background that made it very hard for her to be willing to experience joy. And I had this great privilege as a teacher to lift myself up to full teacherly status, stature and say to her, it's okay to have joy. It's okay. You can't always expect it. It's not always going to happen. So there is suffering, depending on suffering, there's a certain kind of faith that can grow. Depending on that faith, there can be delight. Depending on the existence of that delight, there can grow this joy, which I'll talk more about. 
dependent on that joy, there can be, uh, there, the Buddha said, there's tranquility. Dependent on the tranquility, there can be a happiness. Dependent on that happiness is concentration. And so it goes on from there. But that sequence is very interesting because it suggests that concentration, which is sometimes held up as the holy grail in meditation circles, depends on other conditions being in place first. And I know that I have huffed and puffed to no end, literally to no end, to no purpose, (laughs) (laughs) trying to get concentrated, thinking I'm, I'm miserable, this Buddhism is supposed to help. That's what Buddhism is about, right? Saving us from our misery. And I'm told I'm supposed to concentrate to get over my misery. So I'm going to concentrate. <laughs> but you can't get concentrated if you're miserable. <laughs> it doesn't really work so well. And in fact, what happens is that as people try to get concentrated, uh, all the difficulties of that come to the surface. And all these things, whether... Uh, intentionally, unintentionally, all the difficulties slowly get ironed out or worked out. So there's all these other things that have to be worked out. And this field of faith and delight, for me, has a lot to do with working out some of those kinks, some of the ways in which we feel the opposite of delight, some of the ways in which we're fragmented, some of the ways in which we are don't, not willing to include all of ourselves in the practice. So there's these what, three wonderful factors. There's delight, <clears throat> there's joy, and there's happiness. And what's the difference between the three? And for this, uh, there's an analogy. Say that you, are, uh, you or say, say a person is lost in the desert without water. You've been around there for a long time. You're really thirsty, desperate for water. And it seems like there's no water. This is going to be pretty bad. And you're walking on this desert trail, and then you see this other person coming the other way. And the person's refreshed, perhaps hair is wet. And the person says, Oh, yeah, just around that bend over there, there's this wonderful, refreshing pool of clean water. So the delight is wow, it's so close, there's water. You haven't seen the water yet, but you know it exists. So there's this knowledge, this awareness, this reflection. Oh, it's there. It's this excitement, this delight. And then you quickly go around the bend, and there you see, in the distance, you see that water. So you know the water is there. And so when you know it's there, you have to see it. You're kind of that's the, the a greater excitement, a greater kind of excitement that's not abstract knowledge, but knowledge that comes from really being knowing and seeing for oneself, being connected. And then you make it to the water, and you drink some refreshing water, you go take a nice plunge, and you come out. And you're not excited anymore about getting water. You don't need to be excited. Now you're satisfied, and there's a deep contentment deep happiness from having drunk. So that those three stages kind of reflect the difference between these three qualities. 
And so the joy factor is meant to, is, it points to something deeper than an understanding, an appreciation of something. But really it's something that comes from a direct contact with ourselves, with the present moment. The way I like to see it is that, uh, is another analogy, if I may. I used to run as a kind of exercise. <clears throat> and I remember when I first started running, I don't know how long, for a while. I hated the first 300 yards, or 300 you know, feet or whatever it was. It was awful. And I would have a lot of thoughts. This is ridiculous. I gotta stop. What am I doing? I'm gonna hurt my shins, my knees. I must look dorky. You know, stop. I had a lot of stop thoughts. Stop. There's a book waiting for you. Go back to your novel. All kinds of thoughts. <clears throat> They're quite powerful. They had a lot of authority. But if I continued beyond that 300 yards, however long it was, at some point, I'd start getting into the flow of the running. And those thoughts would drop away. And after a while, it got to be very joyful or pleasurable to be in that flow and the energy field of just running, being there. I'm really in it. I'm really engaged. The joy factor arises when we're really engaged ourselves in the path. We're no longer reading the menu. There's a phenomenon in America called bookstand Buddhists or night, nightstand, nightstand Buddhists. Nightstand Buddhists. But you're not just reading about it, you're actually doing it. And there's a way of doing it. It might take a while to get there where there's a certain kind of joy of engagement, joy that comes out of engagement. And uh, it has a, uh, different, different aspects to it, but one thing I want to point to is that it took, in the running, it took overcoming all those thoughts that say stop. It took the wisdom not to listen to those thoughts. And it's very important when you engage, engage in meditation to somehow or other learn that there's a time and place not to listen to all the thoughts your mind can produce. You're probably, if you're anything like me, your mind probably has a phenomenal capacity for thoughts and different kinds of thoughts, bizarre thoughts. One of the little piece of advice, there's a few pieces of advice my father gave me growing up that stuck for me, made a big difference for me. And one was when I was about 14, he took me aside and he said, Gil, as you grow up, from time to time, you're going to have some really bizarre thoughts. And he said, it's okay. We all do. You don't have to take it seriously. 
And you know, sooner or later, guess what happened? <laughs> I had a bizarre thought, or two, or three, but I had been warned. And that made a big difference for me. So that, you know, okay, just, so what? So what does it take for you not to pick up every thought that your mind makes? Or not to give it every thought that your mind can produce to give it authority? It's one thing for your mind to have a thought. It's another thing, a whole other thing, for you to give it authority, to, to credence. Where in the manual of being a human being does it say that every thought is significant? Every thought is valuable and meaningful. I didn't get, I didn't get that manual. So somehow or other, there has to be some willingness to not get so involved in every thought, to put it aside, to let go, put it aside, in favor of, for this period of time, of engaging of working, being present. And one of the great things to do when you sit is to be engaged with your breath. Focus on your breath. When you're doing walking, to engage yourself with the steps as you walk. It can be boring at times. A mental note that I've had, uh, that I've used, is cardboard breath. Sometimes my breath just has felt just like cardboard. And I learned something, it took a while to learn this, but I learned the technique for how to deal with cardboard breath. Probably, you wanna know what the technique is? Patience. <laughs> it's gonna be that way until it's not that way. So I would just sit and be mindful of cardboard breath. but to engage, to kind of enter into, to let go of our thoughts so we can be more present. And there's another, there's a flip side to letting go. The other other half, there's letting go of something and there's letting go into something. And if you only let go of, maybe you don't really allowing yourself the full possibility of entering into the practice. So, for example, to let go of a thought and let go into your body, let go into the breathing, let go into the feet, let go into your joy, let go into the peace, let go into a sense of presence, whatever it might be for you. So it's kind of, a, kind of like a, the image I like is that of you know, holding on to the edge of the, or, you know, the diving board. And you have to let go of the diving board to f- fall into that refreshing pool of water. But you let go and you let go into, drop into. The ability to drop into your body, let go into it. To allow, to let go, to let, let go into, for me, also has a meaning to allow, to make space for this body, for this breath. 
So we're not only filling awareness with what we think, but we're letting awareness have space to be filled with our direct experience of breathing, direct experience of being in a body, of sounds coming in, the feet as they walk. And we do it over and over again. Come in, be present, engage, engage. And I'm a kind of person that, that uh, just loves to be engaged in this kind of process and this stuff. Just the fact that I have a path to, to walk and it's a meaningful path, that, that, it's, it's kind of not, not, a, not that important how well I do. <laughs> I'm just so happy that I have a path. It's not that important how far I get. I'm just so glad I'm on it. And that helps because then you're not, I'm not so tied up in the goal and what's supposed to happen, what shouldn't happen. Just to be here, be present. Heather described the process of kneading bread as a way of kind of you're kneading yourself, massaging, gathering together, unifying. Now, one of the things that's significant about this process of the joy of practice, joy of engagement, is that it's a joy that arises not because of some evaluation, not because of some idea or judgment about something. It's maybe similar to when you're running. I sometimes feel a kind of joy in the running. It's not joy because I know I'm running, but it's a joy because maybe the endorphins are flowing or something. It's not a joy. It's dependent on getting something. I'm not, I haven't won the California lottery. And it's quite something in meditation to be so involved, so engaged, quietly, subtly engaged. Even if, even if you're not doing a very good job, you're just engaged. And then to feel a certain kind of delight or bubbling of some maybe very subtle kind of satisfaction that doesn't depend on getting the conventional things we want to get. The mind can be so powerfully looking to get things, the world of aboutness, to win the lottery, to get that relationship, to get that job, to resolve that relationship, to figure out a better rejoinder for the conversation last week. Something. But to actually feel a happiness or a joy that's not dependent on the usual conditions of the world. It's really, it gives a lot of confidence and shows you that the happiness is not dependent on getting the things you want in the world. There's a very deep happiness that can happen that just comes from, deep wells up from inside. The simile that the Buddha used for joy of engagement like this is that of a beautiful lake, a beautiful mountain lake, where there's no streams or rivers that flow into the lake. The rain doesn't fall in the lake. But the lake gets replenished from an underwater spring that bubbles up from the bottom of the lake and sends a a current of refreshing, cool water up and through the lake. 
the analogy is meant to show that there's nothing coming in from the world. There's no streams coming in from the world. We're not involved with winning lotteries or getting jazzed up or resolved with our relationships with people outside or getting the right food or, you know, we're not being fed from the outside. But rather we're being fed from deep inside. This nourishment, this feeding, nourishment that comes. In a sense of of, uh, something something that feels nourishing or satisfying or lightening or refreshing that seems to come from inside. It doesn't have to be very strong. But this is the joy factor. At times it can be very strong. And sometimes it's a sense of current is so strong it feels like it's you know, like big waves cascading through us where we're up, where we're kind of lift, being lifted up. It can be very, very, very subtle also. One of the reasons why to talk about this <clears throat> is that if you have some appreciation that this kind of joy has a role in practice, then you might be more uh, inclined to notice the subtle kind when it occurs. It might be a very, very subtle sense of pleasure, a very subtle, quiet sense of beauty that might arise, or satisfaction or something. And to appreciate, oh, this is an important part of practice. This is good. And that very simple appreciation, this is good, supports it, shines light on it, helps it to flower, helps it to grow. This idea of a, this, this current of under, underwater spring that comes up and flows through is really pointing also back to the body. That the joy, this joy uh, has a lot to do with being in the body and it's something that wells up within and spreads through the body. And it points to the idea again <clears throat> of how the Dharma practice is helping us become whole. So that all of us, our, our whole being, our whole kind of lived being is included and it gets conditioned or, or refreshed or nourished by the practice, by mindfulness, by awareness, by presence. And it takes a while. It's not an easy or quick thing. But it's just nice to know that uh, as, we're, as practice unfolds over the months and years, there's a wakening up, there's a, an enlivening, a nourishing uh, sense of a whole that's being developed where all of us, the whole being who we are, it's not, intellectu- it's not an intellectual exercise. It's not something just of the head or just of the heart. But it's meant to be all of us here. So what do you have to let go of? <clears throat> So you can be whole. To what degree do what you how does what you cling to keep you divided or separate from yourself, keep you partial? What do you have to let go of so you can fill out 
What do you have to let go of so you can engage more fully in this process of practice? What can you let go of? What can you not pay attention to, in a sense, give heed to, so you can get over those first 300 yards and really kind of get into it? And probably the single most significant thing you can begin loosening up on, thinning out, is your preoccupation with yourself. For those of you who are preoccupied. (laughs) It's really amazing how many of our thoughts and concerns have to do with me, myself, and I. Sometimes we're the star of our movie. Sometimes we're the star villain in their movie. But sometimes it's amazing how much is about me, myself, and I. And there's something, there's a way in which thinking a lot, fixating on, measuring, comparing oneself, judging oneself, keeps us from being whole keeps us from being ourselves, actually. Keeps us in that first 300 yards. Is there some way, provisionally, temporarily, just to run the experiment, that you could try for a day, just for a day, to let go of more of self, selfing, building up self, protecting self, defending self, explaining self, judging self. And perhaps spend a day being a lot simpler Spend a day being here, just here. Just here with some confidence that being here is valuable. Some delight to have the opportunity to do a little bit more than usual in your life to be here in a simple way. And perhaps as you let go of self for a day, perhaps you can drop into, let go into, a a new understanding of what it means to be alive, to be present, to be here. May you all be refreshed in your practice. Let's sit for a moment.
you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.